Matt, thanks for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. Uh, why don't we start with you kind of introducing yourself and your background and sort of the, the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, I, uh, um, I'm a senior fellow at Georgetown Government Affairs Institute right now where we do uh, programming, <clears throat> educating um, uh, executive branch clients and private sector clients on how Congress works. Uh, so it's an educational nonprofit uh, within Georgetown. Uh, my personal background is I grew up in local politics uh, in a city machine. Uh, my dad had a patronage job with uh, the machine in Albany, New York. Uh, and that put me sort of dead square into sort of rough and tumble uh, real world politics at a very young age. Um, and uh, that included everything from like fundraisers we were required to go to, uh, to campaigning door to door with my dad when he was asked to run in like hopeless elections. We lived out in the suburbs outside the city. so. It was a Democratic machine in the county, in the city, but we were out in sort of a Republican town. So my dad was constantly asked to run for office in hopeless races and was more sort of machine campaigning than I did with him growing up. Um, and that was sort of my introduction to sort of politics as a, as a practiced vocation by people. Um, I also did, uh, I was also very sort of academically interested in politics. My dad was not only sort of involved with machine politics, but also was a, a political junkie uh, about national politics. And so we spent a lot of time talking about national politics. and. I did sort of an academic track uh, coinciding with sort of these work I used to do on, on local campaigns and with the machine and for various candidates. And so uh, in high school and college and graduate school, uh, I did political science um, and pretty standard course through those things uh, at the same time that I spent a lot of time working on elections, uh, local elections, um, state elections and national elections on various sort of volunteer capacities. I never had a job, I never had a paid job working on elections, but I volunteered basically constantly through my teenage years in my 20s. Uh, and then when I finished up graduate school, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I was like teaching students about politics, but I'm not much uh, for sort of the hardcore research side of politics. I've always enjoyed being involved in politics more uh, and teaching about it. And so uh, after I got out of grad school, I did some uh, interviews for, you know, liberal arts colleges and things like that. But um, I was very much had an eye towards coming to Washington. I was working in the New York State Senate when I finished uh, graduate school. Uh, to LA for a state senator. And um, uh, I got a job at Congressional Research Service on the Hill, which is really a perfect combination for me, uh, a mix of um, academic, government, and political work. Uh, and I worked there for, for 10 years. My portfolio was all sorts of institutional issues about Congress, um, ranging from you know office budgets uh, and you know sort of the micro institutional stuff of staffing in Congress, all the way up to the broad issues of fighting with the president over separation of powers and uh, thinking about Congress in the context of the constitutional system. Uh, and I worked there for 10 years, including a two-year stint on loan to House Appropriations, where I um, was uh, a senior staffer uh, on the legislative branch subcommittee, where we were uh, appropriating the money for the legislative branch. And so that turned me into sort of um, an actual player in institutional politics on the on the legislative branch side, where I was you know, carving up the money and advocating uh, for various um, funding stuff on the legislative branch. Uh, I left uh, CRS uh, in 2017 um, and moved over to Georgetown, where I've been ever since. And that gave me a little free hand to write publicly when I was at CRS and on the Hill, of course. You have to be sort of buttoned up about what you say in public and much more sort of uh, just a behind the scenes um, staffer in that sense. But I've been at Georgetown. I've done a lot more sort of public writing uh, and still I still see my main sort of value added as being sort of educator. Uh, I'm pretty good at translating sort of the institutional politics of Congress to a mass audience. And so I do a lot of that uh, writing in both academic journals and popular pieces. And, and of course, uh, teaching. I still 
you know, I run uh, educational programs about Congress and uh, uh, do a, a lot of side teaching in an academic sense uh, uh, at various uh, universities and around. And so that's sort of my uh, uh, background of how I got to where I am for sure. And so, you know, you, you mentioned you're not a traditional kind of scholar, obviously, but you've got a lot of practical uh, on the ground experience in addition to the work that you've got uh, with the CRS. So what are the broad areas of your research interest? You know, are there specific areas that, you know, that attract you more than others when it comes to Congress or when it comes to the government? Yeah. So, I mean, broadly speaking, I'm interested, I'm interested in, uh, I mean, you can get me going on any sort of institutional in issue in Congress. Uh, I've never been sort of an elections guy um, or, or that. And uh, I don't think of myself really as a policy guy either. I think of myself much more focused on sort of institutional issues, which makes me feel more like a scholar. So sometimes I hang out with policy types in the Hill and I feel like a political scientist and hang out with political scientists and I feel like sort of like a Hill rat. Um, but uh, I'm interested in institutional issues of Congress and uh, both internally, uh, institutional issues, internal running of the legislatures, but also as they relate to the separation power system at large. Um, I think all of this is my sort of normative motivation of creating an optimal environment for sort of this messy practice of democratic politics. I, I don't, uh, I think of myself as a realist relative to a, a lot of um, scholars and analysts about politics. And I, one thing that I think drives people bananas about me is I don't think sort of Washington politics is particularly corrupt or degraded or sort of like, you know, um, lowbrow. I've, I've seen, you know, much, much, much worse at the state and local level. And so I think sort of Washington politics operates, uh, uh, and on that dimension in, in a really good way, um, that doesn't mean that institutions are optimized in any sense. Um, but that, you know, my, my main motivation is sort of figuring out how to create an optimal environment for the fight and politics is a fight. And I, I don't particularly uh, agree with anyone who says it's not sort of a messy fight. That's what it is. Um, but so, you know, broadly speaking, I'm interested in these big picture issues as sort of my normative motivation, particularly within our uh, separation of power structure. Um, because I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the internal questions in Congress, and this is one of sort of my definite research interest areas, is how the internal issues in Congress affect sort of this broad position of Congress in the constitutional structure. I think sometimes people get lost in sort of the micro institutional things in Congress as sort of their own ends. Um, but I'm not really super concerned about uh, sort of the internal system of Congress as its own. I think it's important, but it's much more important in this broad uh, structure of sort of what sort of constitutional system do we want and how does Congress fit into that? Um, and I think a lot of people look at the internal mechanisms of Congress and seek to sort of judge them on their own terms, uh, where to me, really, the, the test of those is how they fit into sort of your broader thinking about how you want our entire constitutional system to, to, to run. And that um, that makes me different than a lot of people. So I do, I do care about sort of micro institutional things in Congress. Uh, certainly, I want Congress to run internally in a way that uh, encourages you know, good, smart, diligent people to want to be members of Congress. I think it's one of the biggest problems with Congress right now is we sort of our institutions in a way that doesn't encourage that. Um, but also, I think with an eye towards making sure that uh, whatever internal arrangements we have in Congress are structured towards the larger goal of uh, creating sort of the constitutional regime we want. And of course, that's up for contestation what you want. Uh, but my view is sort of the Madisonian system of, of separation of powers is worth preserving. Uh, and so is is worth preserving sort of a, the role for a, a very transformative legislature that is that is meaty and not just sort of a uh, arena for uh, policy developed elsewhere to to occur. And so I uh, I um, am very interested in sort of the institutional mechanisms that can create these things. We know we know a lot of the institutional mechanisms that cause the decline. 
um, but I'm interested in sort of uh, how to um, build a legislature that is self-preserving in a sense. Um, some people see there's this inevitable decline from the 18th century forward that legislatures are going to have to give way to sort of authoritarians who are you know, structured within democratic societies, right? You can just figure out a way to make an elected monarch and that's sort of the end teleological point of democratic governance. I don't really believe that. Um, and I think there's a role for an actual legislature as a form. And I think the form has value uh, worth preserving. And so uh, understanding how to get the institution to that place um, is sort of my motivation for looking at various institutional issues, whether they be small issues like I'm interested in, like how social media changes have affected sort of office operations all the way up to larger issues I'm in interested in, which is what reforms would sort of better balance um, the you know statutory power and oversight between Congress and the president right now. Why don't we take that last one and go a little bit deeper then, you know, this, uh, you know, big, bigger question around the balance between the executive and the legislative yeah. and what kinds of changes you think are necessary to, I would assume, stop the erosion, what you perceive as an erosion of the legislator's capability. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, so first of all, I don't think there's any sort of uh, not a sort of Pollyannish view that like this is easily fixable or easily reversible or necessarily that you want to reverse it. Like I don't want to create the 17, it's not my goal or my normative goal to create the, the 1788 Congress uh, in terms of authority. I think there's uh, every good reason for the United States to have something that 19th century people would have called a standing army and every good reason for the United States to have uh, sort of uh, executive discretion in the president over all sorts of things that would have seemed crazy in 1788, be it uh, tariff policy or independence, setting interest rates at the Fed or all sorts of things like that, that Congress probably shouldn't control in the modern era. So I don't uh, necessarily, I'm not looking to reset the clock. I'm just looking to think about how in the 21st century you might want to do this. Um, and so a lot of it to me is uh, figuring out ways or thinking through ways that Congress can maintain sort of its oversight capacity while still allowing sort of the executive to have the statutory discretion that might be necessitated by the modern world. Um, and I think in a lot of places, Congress is failing on that. One project that I'm beginning is a, is a, is a uh, sort of global look at the idea of um, sunsetting provisions uh, of a legislature as a form of uh, regularized oversight in Congress. And so the idea here is that it's very difficult for um, it's very difficult for, for Congress to give the president sort of statutory power. Uh, without losing control of it indefinitely. The, the, the line of court decisions and sort of the very nature of the legislature is that you can give the president power by majority vote or something that akin to majority vote, uh, but you can only take it back with a suit majority because he's going to veto your sort of attempts to reclaim it from him. And we don't have sort of the benevolent presidents with a Whig view of history that are just going to like shove stuff back to the executive. Like, you know, Biden's a great example of this. I, Biden's going to come into office and he's going to talk a lot about the excesses of the Trump administration and how Trump was, you know, used his power poorly. But what Biden is not going to do is say that I shouldn't have these powers. He's just going to say I should use these wisely. Um, and that's going to be good enough for a lot of people. And it's going to be a mistake, I think, of a lot of Democratic partisans uh, to be OK with that. Uh, in my view, we, we need to restructure the institutional control Congress has um, over the executive. And then the first step to doing that is giving Congress the capability if it wants to sort of reclaim power from, from the president, because there's plenty of times that Congress does want to, and they just don't have the means uh, simply because you need just this massive supermajority to do so. And so two things spring from this. One is, well, how do you do that? And then again, I'm not pretending that's easy, but my, uh, 
my sort of global inclination is that the way to do this is to, you know, never again give the president power that doesn't expire, right? And that we can always continue to give him power if we want him to have it further, give the executive branch authorities that continue. But if every authority given to the executive branch going forward is put on a deadline, okay, then that shifts the ball in the Congress's court because the absence of action then preserves Congress's power and authority in the long run rather than preserves the president's power. Right now to undo these authorities, uh, you need a, a, a positive act of a supermajority of Congress. If you just set them up to expire, then what you need is a positive act of Congress for them to continue. And I can imagine this being very routine. Um, sort of my basic premise is that Congress should just package every power it's ever given the president discretionarily into one bill. And every two years it would expire and they could just re-vote for it, but remove the things they no longer want him to have. Uh, so that by positive action, they could uh, any time by not doing anything, they could reclaim powers they had given the president. And I'm not saying it's necessary for everything. There's certain powers we want the president to have discretionary, and you would just by rote, you know, revote on them. Uh, and but then if there were things that were flashpoints, uh, they could be pulled out of that power package in Congress. And the whole principle is just to move the ball into Congress's court. And this is sort of like it sounds crazy when you think about it, but this is naturally how we do the appropriations process. Congress gives the president a set of money for a year, and then he has to come back and beg for more. And if Congress doesn't want to give it to him, they adjust it because they need to take positive action to give him more money next year. We don't assume the executive gets last year's money. Uh, he, Congress has to vote on it. And so setting up all sorts of statutory authorities that way, to me, would be a better structure uh, for the oversight process, not because Congress wouldn't give the president lots of power, of course they would, and, and rightfully so in many cases, but because it would give them uh, the ability to reserve the right to withhold those powers at any time, uh, any individual power. Are there problems with this? Of course. Would there be partisan gains with this? Of course there would be. But to me, it would be a much better structure of the relationship uh, between the legislature and the executive uh, in the long haul. And I also think it would be good for Congress. Uh, one thing that Congress, uh, members of Congress tend to do right now is sort of push power off to the president in order to push responsibility off as well. Um, and by forcing Congress to vote every two years, it means every Congress on things like war authorizations uh, or the power of the National Emergency Act or the power to set tariff rates, uh, all things that have come up under not just Trump, but uh, other previous presidents, Bush and Obama as well, uh, would force on them uh, more responsibility uh, than they currently necessarily take. Uh, the vast majority of members of the House have never voted on either the uh, war on terrorism AUMF from 2001 or the Iraq AUMF from 2003, both of which are still in force and both would give the president a large amount of statutory power in the area of national security and war making. Um, and to have a Congress that has not voted on those, but just handed them the executive, bad for the separation of powers and it's bad for representation of Congress internally, in, in my opinion. That's very interesting. I mean, we've looked at, at the Sunwater Institute, we've looked at uh, sunsets quite a bit uh, as it relates to just normal legislation. Um, and, you know, there are some examples like Texas or whatever that, that, that does this on a, on a pretty systematic basis. Um, what are your thoughts on sunsets, generally speaking, for a wider body of, of, of bills? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I, so I think it's much more crucial in the realm of the balance of power uh, between the institutions. Um, it's certainly the case that, that you can, uh, you know, the American system uh, very much because of our separation of power system and the large number of veto players very much uh, prioritizes the status quo. It's very difficult to change things. Um, and that means that it's very difficult to make a law. And but if you can make the law, it's very difficult to repeal it. Um, and so that sort of status quo uh, bias within the system 
does suggest the idea that it might be worthwhile sunsetting even just regular legislation. Um, uh, you know, just providing a benefits for things or certain regulatory leg legislations uh, that might create a massive overflow of work for Congress. Um, and it's not obvious to me that in the policy realm, uh, the status quo shouldn't have some bias. Uh, but when we give the president power, uh, be it authority under TARP in 2009, which was sunset, or the power to go to war, like in 2001, um, often those are made with very short term uh, goals in mind. Um, rescuing the banking system in 2009 and uh, uh, dealing with global terrorism in 2001. Neither of those which seem appropriate as long-term priorities which should have status quo bias attached to them. Certainly in a republic, it seems crazy uh, to be statutorily implementing war powers that last decades. Um, and again, TARP was sunset quite effectively by Congress, especially when the Obama administration Oh, and the Bush administration too at the beginning, but the Obama administration took it and ran with it in directions Congress didn't intend. Uh, and that's one reason to, to, to sunset legislation that empowers executive discretion is that you don't know where it's going. Uh, and sunsetting gives Congress a mechanism of sort of control of con congressional intent, um, which again is to me, that, that's the definition of oversight, right? It's just uh, providing Congress with extra tools for, for controlling congressional intent. Uh, again, sunsetting would be powerful with legislation, uh, of course. Um, and uh, you know, and and might be useful in some cases, but it's not it's not something that I see as uh, nearly as necessary as sunsetting sort of the transfer of legislative authority, uh, discretionary power to the executive. What about your thoughts on regulation and then delegating that responsibility to the executive? Since we're on the subject, I'd be curious to hear what you have to say yeah. about that area. Well, so uh, I'm in favor of more congressional control over regulation. Uh, but again, at the oversight level, like I think the basic structure uh, of what Congress has designed is sound, uh, where uh, the executive agencies uh, have a systematic process for uh, creating regulations, uh, Administrative Procedure Act, uh, and that, that experts in the agencies are, are better equipped in a tremendous amount of cases than Congress for uh, picking individual regulations and implementing, you know, the broad stroke laws that Congress provides. I think that system is fundamentally correct that legislatures should make broad laws and executives should implement them, uh, hopefully in, in the guise of, of smart policy and good execution of the law. Uh, that said, I do think the oversight balance needs to be tipped closer to Congress. The Congressional Review Act um, is, in my opinion, extremely weak right now. It, it basically allows Congress to uh, repeal uh, repeal regulations, um, but it requires them essentially to make a new law, which means they can only use it if they can overcome a presidential veto or the most common use of it is at the beginning of a new administration when they can, with the help of a friendly president, undo regulations very easily that were made in the previous administration. Um, and that's not good enough in my view. Uh, in my view, the congressional review actually be strengthened. Uh, the problem uh, as it sits right now with this sort of, uh, with this sort of thing is that um, the INS First Child Act, or court case from 1983, prevents the legislative veto. Uh, if I had my magic wand and could fix the Constitution, I would make the legislative veto constitutional, allow uh, both chambers of Congress to uh, uh, veto executive branch actions that were made under statutory authority without having the president uh, involved to sign the bill. And so that just a joint resolution or a concurrent resolution of Congress could undo a regulation. A concurrent resolution of Congress could undo the National Emergency Act declaration made by the president. A concurrent resolution of Congress could veto a tariff change made under authority Congress gave the president. That to me would strike a much better balance of power between the branches. And I think it would be extremely helpful in regard to the Congressional Review Act. It would allow both chambers of Congress, if the majorities in Congress 
didn't want a regulation that was um, put in place by the executive branch, they could simply cross it out. Um, and so getting there is uh, a, a little more difficult under the current you know, structure of constitutional law, you'd have to replace uh, sort of what they have right now, which is joint resolutions that the president needs to sign in order to overturn these things. You have to change it so that, you know, regulations of a certain size needed to be approved by Congress. And if they weren't approved, they wouldn't go into place. Um, and that's all possible. That's under the same principle as the sunsetting idea where, you know, you need positive action of Congress. On the other hand, I don't want Congress needing to approve every regulation in the executive branch. Uh, so you can narrow it down and you, you, can, you can tinker a little. And I think that would be good to do. Uh, but I certainly agree that overall sort of congressional control of executive branch regulation uh, should be uh, enhanced oversight. I don't want Congress taking more necessarily more authority do itself well to be more interested in executive branch regulations. But I don't necessarily want more, you know, more detailed laws substituting for sort of the flexibility of the regulatory process in the executive branch. I think ultimately the basic structure is sound uh, where Congress doesn't try to concern itself with the minute details of, of certain policies. That said, some, some agencies are overly, have overly broad mandates from Congress. Um, however you feel about the EPA, I think it probably has too broad a mandate, um, which leads to these wild swings between administrations that are uh, pro-business versus administrations that are more pro-environmental regulation. And, and that's a spot where maybe more, maybe more lawmaking is worthwhile, but I don't really want Congress getting the business of sort of the day-to-day the, the -day details of regulatory policy. Well, let's talk about Congress itself then and how it's working or not working uh, as, as intended or in, envisioned. So you've clearly gotten very close to the appropriations process since you were involved in that, that committee. So can you tell us, you know, more specifically what, what you know, when you've personally observed Congress in action, um, where is it working well? Where can it work better, yeah. uh, at least according to the areas that you focused on? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think the first thing I'd say is that I think the I think the form of Congress matters. Like I, I don't think like the separation of power system should just hinge on the idea that we separate powers between different people, right? Like I don't think our system will work as well if you just had three different presidents. You'd have you know separate and give one the judicial function, one the congressional function, and one the presidential function, you know, the executive function. It's not merely the idea of breaking up power. That's important, but it's also key that there actually is something to the form of government. I think the legislative form does matter. Uh, and it's a good form. And that's why I think that, you know, sort of like these remote Congress ideas you read about, which I think are good ideas during the pandemic, sometimes were seem to be there just to sort of fulfill the congressional mandate. Oh, we need Congress to do this. So we'll just set up a system that ultimately means the leaders will be making picks. And but I think that kind of loses out what's great about Congress, which is sort of the collective nature of decision making, uh, the diversity of representation that you can get when you have 400 people instead of one person uh, and the public role of it. Uh, the need to defend your ideas against challenges from them. Um, and, and knowing that just having a good idea isn't good enough. You need to get a majority of people to support it and you need the public to support it. Uh, and so that, that's my sort of normative vision of Congress is to actually have uh, a, a deliberative body of, of diverse people. When I say deliberative, I don't really think about rhetoric. Like I, a lot of people do think that congressional speeches are important and I think there's a place for them and a role for them. But when I, when I think of deliberative, I mean just the, the idea that someone can come with their idea that they think improves your bill and they can test it and they can force you to defend your bill as is. And if you can't get a majority to defend it, well, their idea is gonna get in there, right? The ability to modify a bill and change it with a better idea in public with a majority to me is the true sort of test of the deliberative process. And so when I look at sort of the shortcomings of Congress, I think about sort of the deviation from that. 
right? If our deliberative norm is that we're just here sort of, and this is all, you know, fanciful in some sense, Congress never sort of fully you know, embodied this, but the idea that if someone has a better idea, right, that they can get a open debate between the current idea, uh, the change proposed and their idea uh, on the floor in public and force people to defend them, then to me, that is what sort of the essence of politics really is. Um, these competing interests sort of working out these things in public. And, you know, I don't think that's the total sum of politics. Obviously, I think there's importance uh, to the executive branch where we have unitary actors who can make decisions in secret uh, and move those forward. But I do think the form of the legislature is one component of sort of like a healthy uh, political community. And so where I see Congress deviating from this, um, where too much power is now centralized in leaders that make it look more in some ways like a unitary figure or at least sort of a small tightly controlled oligopoly uh, and uh, more and more done sort of uh, maybe not in secret but without open deliberation of competing ideas and more frustration from uh, this diverse body of members that very few people get to ultimately participate because the power structures have been um, made so steep and vertical uh, that that that's where I see sort of a shortcoming. One of the, you know, and so part of my concern is, is twofold about this. I'm very interested in sort of internally, how do you make a legislature uh, most, you know, politically satisfactory? And to me, a lot of the judge of it is like, well, how do, how do losers feel when they lose? No one likes to lose in politics, um, but I think people do like or feel better when they get a fair shake. Uh, and when they get a fair fight and when their idea gets voted down rather than when their idea gets excluded. Um, and giving people the ability to fight is, is a real turnoff for a lot of people. They don't like it. They don't like when Congress is messy. They don't like when people are screaming at each other. They don't like when there's endless roll call votes. But to me, that is sort of the essence of being able to test ideas. And it stinks to lose. But losing when you've had your say and your chance is a lot more satisfying than just being excluded by what seems to be a process unaligned with sort of those normative ideals. And so internally there's that, but I'm also very interested in sort of uh, the external uh, consequence of this, um, because I do think that one important thing for Congress as an institution to maintain its power uh, is to sort of be decentralized. And, you know, there's not, you know, not a ton of people thinking about how the internal structure of Congress affects sort of its, its external power, but to me, it's almost sort of like key. Uh, and that there's all these incentives um, sometimes for leaders in Congress to centralize power. Um, and that's bad for the backbenchers, uh, but I think it's also bad for Congress. Um, you know, especially now with, with sort of the modern reality that the president is the head of uh, his party um, and that the parties are very polarized. Uh, any sort of centralization, particularly partisan centralization in, in Congress, is almost inherently going to empower the president. Um, he's the leader of the party, and to the degree the party has centralized things and made party leadership sort of the commanding force in Congress means that the president is in many ways going to be the commanding force in Congress. And that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, there's entire, you know, lines of sort of political thought about centralizing congressional power uh, in this manner, making it look more like a parliamentary system. Um, but to me, uh, what Congress should be doing is sort of diversifying its veto players and decentralizing power. Um, and that would not only give more people in Congress the ability to participate in meaningful ways, but it would also reduce the ability of sort of any executive branch actor, any external actor to bulldoze sort of the system uh, and, and be sort of outsized in, in their power themselves. So, you know, 
the, the appropriations process is not necessarily the best example of this, but it, it's it's one I, I know the best. And and over you know the last decade or 15 years, we've really seen uh, sort of uh, devolving of the appropriations process away from the committee uh, and the subcommittees of appropriations towards the congressional leadership. Uh, a lot of this has to do with party polarization, which is not a trend we're going to like reverse by any institutional means. But some of it also has to do with the austerity measures post 2009. Um, and, uh, and, and some of it just has to do with uh, leaders wanting to grab control away from the committees. But if you look at sort of the budget and appropriations process now, it's almost entirely controlled by omnibus legislation negotiated by chamber leaders um, over top line spending. Uh, with less and less role for the individual subcommittees. And this is a long trend process um, of, of leadership control. I can remember back in the you know, 1980s and 1990s, often sort of subcommittees and the appropriations would come up with their bill you know, for a legislative branch or for defense or whoever. And that bill would be the one that went to the floor. And if it didn't have the votes on the floor, it would fail and they'd go back and try again. Uh, leaders don't accept failure on the floor anymore. And so they are going to be heavy handed in making sure the bill conforms to what they want uh, on the floor. Um, they've gone, you know, when I was at the Appropriations Committee, we still had open rules on appropriations bills, meaning that people could often offer amendments on the floor to alter the, fu the funding of these things. That's been almost totally shut off in the appropriations process, even before these, you know, omnibus bills became the norm. Your ability, you know, starting in 2010, your ability to get an amendment on the floor to an appropriations bill basically went towards zero. Um, and uh, that was, you know, so there's one of the last places where you did have sort of this open deliberative process in the House floor uh, where, where people pushing these bills out of committee had to defend them against amendments. Um, and that's kind of gone. Uh, leaders don't like that. No one likes that. They like a much more controlled process. Um, but to me, that controlled process, this idea that you're just um, sort of using the legislature as a tool to move a predetermined outcome through that you're trying to get is really, it's not making a good use of the, of the form at all. Uh, and it's not benefiting the legislature and it's not benefiting the, the constitutional structure. And an open debate on appropriations bills on the floor um, is messy and it takes forever. You know, and these people have crazy ideas that you have to beat off, um, but that's okay. Um, and sort of, you know, I, I very much dislike uh, sort of arguments in the name of efficiency in the within the legislature. Efficiency in government, great. Execution of policy, great. Uh, efficiency in the deliberative process, often is, as often as not, is a, is a negative. Well, I think what, what you're talking about efficiency, it depends on the way you define that, right? If, if, if you define efficiency as maximum information from the members, right, then you have a different process than if you define efficiency as the quickest way to get a bill passed. Yes, for right? sure. And so I think when you talk about this idea of competing ideas playing out in the public sphere in Congress, a lot of people feel like that's what's missing or what information is uh, being exchanged in Congress is more positioning information rather than real substantive information about policy alternatives. Yeah. I right? mean, I, so when you, yeah. when you think about, obviously you've thought a lot about the process because what we're talking about is process, right? You've got the people in Congress and then you've got whatever process they're using to get bills to, to create information and get bills out the door. Yeah. Right. Um, so what kind of, and you've mentioned rules, you know, on bills, et cetera, when they're reported, what are some, or do you have any ideas on how to change the process to kind of maximize that, that elusive idea of, of deliberation or, or yeah. policy alternative? Yeah. I mean, so I don't, 
I don't think it's sort of um, I don't think it's sort of necessarily a difficult uh, normative problem. Like we can we can come up with a list of sort of things that would enhance the deliberate process, right? Like disallowing sort of closed rules and disallowing the leadership from putting bills on the floor that didn't allow amendment at all, right? And providing members with more resources so they understood bills better and more time to sort of think about them. And we can come up with a whole laundry list of things that it's more sort of the uh, political um, political will to get to those sorts of reforms. There's all sorts of incentives not to do those things, uh, particularly from the point of view of leaders, particularly point of view from, from parties. Like having an open debate on the floor leads to all sorts of um, undesirable outcomes uh, in the short term for individual members and individual parties and individual ideological proponents of bills. You don't wanna sit there and have to deal with embarrassing amendments that you A, might lose to, that you dislike, uh, and B, might just be there to sort of uh, make you look bad. And that's a huge problem in a partisan environment. Um, but to my mind, you know, uh, some easier places to start that are, that are doable uh, would be to sort of reverse the trend of uh, limiting uh, the time committee chairs can stay in on the Republican side and to beat back sort of democratic ideas of heading that direction uh, and build more expertise in the committee system. And that starts, you know, people, a lot of people talk about staff and resources, and I, I think that's all important too, but starting by getting members who have deep expertise in policy areas at the committee chair level and allowing them to build power bases uh, would go a long way to um, weakening the power of leaders over individual policy areas. Uh, and I think it's one that's doable, right? It's you know not easy, but making sure that someone could be a committee chair for a decade or more um, would allow them to become, A, to develop the expertise in the policy area, which is great and all, but second, to develop a power base in that policy area between the connections to the interest groups and to the executive branch agencies where they could really challenge the leadership uh, over things. And, and you can see the breakdown of this on the Republican side um, in the last 30 years very clearly. They, they put in term limits uh, for their committee chairs, you know, six-year term limit, and no one um, at, at the committee chairman level can now generate any sort of power base um, or expertise. And so they just become sort of musical chairs, rotating figures uh, that take direction from the leadership. And, you know, the Democrats have resisted this uh, a little bit better, uh, but you still have sort of that same tendency towards it. And there's a lot of reasons people want to break up the, the, that sort of long-term committee chairman, right? Some people have this bad recollection of the, of the Southern segregationists running the committees. Other people just um, want their turn in power, right? And waiting around 15 years in Congress to have any influence in the committee system stinks. Um, but, you know, the fight between the backbenchers and the committee chairs can be ameliorated in other ways without having to sacrifice this power balance between the committee chairs and the leadership uh, as a whole right now. Um, and you know we may be at a we may be at a good spot on this Democratic side. One thing that's happened on the Democratic side recently is we have a total calcification of leadership at the top, right? Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn have all been you know leaders for over a dozen years, and that's a long time in Congress. Um, and undoing that logjam might open up uh, a little bit more rethinking on the Democratic side about the relationship between the leadership uh, and the committees and the backbenchers. Um, but as you know, as you look at the last 10 years, the real way that the backbenchers or the outcasts of the parties have organized is not through sort of institutional change, but it's largely been through trying to organize on the floor themselves as sort of factions, which is I'm all in favor of, uh, but is a sort of a second best thing. If you look at the Freedom Caucus trying to do this in public side to a lesser degree, 
the, the progressives or the, the so-called squad on the Democratic side, you see sort of people trying to organize factional power in Congress, uh, but they're not doing it through institutional mechanisms. They're largely doing it just through the power of their vote on the floor, which again is fine. Um, and I'm more than happy to see it because uh, that is sort of working through this deliberative process by trying to deny majorities for the leadership. Um, but it, it could be paired with sort of institutional changes that encourage and, and, and foster this sort of thing. Thank you.